Let's be honest. How many times have you chalked up a relationship ending to bad timing? For hosts Nancy and PJ Heslin, the answer is a lot. It took living separately in Canada, the U.S., and France, two divorces, and 20 years for timing to work out. And when it finally did in the south of France, the couple discovered they had two different versions of their love story. We all do, right? But what if your side is not the whole story, and you have the journals to prove it? Keep listening to Nancy and PJ Finally Get Together, a podcast on love, relationships, and two lives in between. This episode is brought to you by the Podcast Services Division at Lifestuff Media. Having your own podcast allows you to creatively reach all types of audiences, from clients to prospects, to your most loyal membership base. And by utilizing studio affiliates located around the world, coupled with quality remote recording capabilities, Lifestuff Media makes having a corporate podcast easier than ever before. Contact us for a no-obligation consultation at info at lifestuff.com or visit lifestuff.com to learn more. Welcome to episode 16 of Nancy and PJ Finally Get Together. I'm Nancy Heslin. And I'm PJ Heslin. An exciting episode this time, PJ. Why do you take it so personally? That is the theme. Uh, and also a big week for you as well, Love Bug. You did a lot of stuff work-wise. Yeah, I'm pretty tired. Leisure-wise. <laughs> How many kilometers did you swim this week? I did uh, 41 kilometers this week, so my arms... Well done. Can't lift my arms. Well done. But actually, I had a more exciting week uh, professionally because I've... Well, a couple weeks because I've been moderating these events uh, really based around sustainability and the environment. I met this really cool person called Paul Pullman, who was the CEO of Unilever. Unilever, the is that the soap company? Yeah, yeah. He was the CEO from 2009 to 2019. And more importantly, isn't it nice that I'm finally taking an interest in things you do? Oh, you're actually asking me questions. <laughs> I'm so out of it. I just... <laughs> <laughs> That's nice, PJ. Remember, it's not always about me. You're so sweet. I am. Um, no, but this guy, the reason I was so impressed by him was that it's the first time I've heard a CEO speak where they really incorporate things that relate to me, like um, empathy and ethics and things like that, and bring it into the workforce. And, and swimming? He didn't talk about swimming. Oh, okay. He didn't do that. But I did learn a few things. And so he's a co-author of this book called um, Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive When They Give More Than They Take. And he doesn't make any money off the book, but it's it's about this idea of incorporating profit with um, purpose. And so when he was at Unilever for 10 years, it's really cool. He made a, built it up so that there was a 290% return for shareholders in the 10 years that he was there. But the company was also consistently ranked as number one in the world for sustainability and for one of the best places to work. And it was really neat hearing from him because he's very passionate about like humans but the other thing that was really good was he was talking about these inner development goals, which I didn't know about. It's a nonprofit and inner development goals are things that kind of support the acceleration towards the UN's sustainable development goals. And again, like for someone like me who has grown up kind of outside of what I think is a traditional workforce, all the things that seem to matter right now for young people, especially with, with planetary health issues, I would have fit right in. Because they all have such high emotions and such high empathy, and those things matter more than the bottom line. Well, especially now it seems, um, uh, not apropos, but uh, timely 
because <laughs> as we sit here, we're sweltering in a heat bulb. Uh, it's clear that something's going on. Yeah, but we don't have it as bad as no, Rome and so, Spain. Spain, Spain t- uh, uh, recorded 60 degrees on the pavement When this I hear week. like 40 degrees Celsius, I just, how do you survive on that? I well, mean, we're really lucky because we got the sea, so that moderates it. So it's not as hot for us. But yeah, like I hear those other temperatures. I'm like, oh my God. So while the world is uh, set to hit a 1.5 degrees Celsius global warming as early as 2034, the, the sadder part to me is that over the last 40 years, there's been a 69% decline in the world wildlife population. Ouch. So if something, if people can just sit back and go, oh yeah, it'll get fixed. And that's eco-talk. <laughs> Although I have to say there's not as many jellyfish, so I'm kind of happy about whatever's yes. going on with that. I, I yeah, totally appreciate it. We are lucky this summer because it seems that the cycle of jellyfish this summer is on a, on a low, thank God. Knock on wood. The interesting thing about doing this kind of work, like moderating, now that I'm starting to do it, I'm gaining a bit of confidence. And you know how much I like practice and really try to yes. get that stuff down. Yeah, you put a lot of work into it. Yeah, because I want to be There's a lot of you energetic. talking to yourself, uh, practicing. The cool thing about it is that people come up to you, not everybody in the room, but you know, several people I've noticed will come and make a point to tell you that they really appreciated you know, the efforts you made and your energy, and they thought it was well-guided and... I didn't realize that so many people had, I don't know, anxiety or or were uncomfortable with public speaking. I find it so easy. It doesn't throw me off in any way. I thought that was like a common thing that everybody knew, that that's a common fear people have of speaking in public. Now, you and I don't have that because we're so awesome and self-confident, but... uh, Well, I I actually looked it up because I saw a survey that said uh, in the States, that was the number one anxiety for most people. Speaking in public. Uh, 40% of the people polled said that was like their biggest fear. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, that reminds me of a story that a friend at work had to make a speech. And when he was speaking, he was very confident. Everything looked great. But then I could tell like his hand was shaking. He was holding onto a piece of paper and the hand was shaking. Are you nervous? Yeah. And immediately when I saw that, I was like, oh, the poor guy. But, you know, confident went well, whatever. And afterwards we were chatting and he said, oh, could you tell I was really nervous? And I said, no, not by the way you were talking because it was confident, you know, well said, everything was great. But I could tell with, like, I, I looked at your hand and I could see the handshake. And I was like, oh, yeah, I know you're nervous. So, yeah, I felt for him at that point. But he was nervous because of public speaking. Yes and no. Then we started talking about it. And he said that the reason that he uh, is sometimes nervous speaking in public is that sometimes he'll look out in the audience and there's something that triggers him about having to speak as a kid in in high school or elementary school, and he would get bullied. He went through some quite bad bullying as a kid, and so that kind of triggers it for him. So it's not really, I guess it is in part it's a public speaking, but it's more about sort of being triggered, being bullied, and Taking then that takes him back. Yeah. yeah, you and I are both lucky to have got out of all that unscathed. I guess I cannot agree with you on that. What do you mean you can't agree? I was with me? bullied. The guy sitting next to me. Yes. Big PJ. <laughs> yes. Big in a, I mean, costal, uh, yeah. like, don't mess with me kind of way big. Yeah, I was in... You were not. I was in elementary school, St. Stanislaus, and that it felt like going to school in the Middle Ages at that school. They literally, it was all run so by the wait, nuns. Wait, what year, wait, like, is this 19... This is what? the 70s, so 70s. this would have been, for this would probably have been about 1974. Before 75, 74, roundabout there. 
So St. Stanislaus was so old school that they, like I said, Catholic, run by all nuns. They literally outside <laughs> had a, an area painted, a big white uh, square, boys, another big white square, girls. Only boys were allowed to play with the boys. Only girls were allowed to play with the girls. And of course, I'm closer in age to my sisters, so my sisters were my friends. So I would stand at the border and play with my sisters, and I guess that set me up for being bullied. And it was so bad that I would go, <laughs> there's a church right near the school. I would go into the church every single recess and lunch just to not get bullied. But, but what do you mean you were bullied? Like Yeah, what? like bully, like fight, like kid, push, shove. Kids used to come up behind me and like spit in the back of my what? head. Or they would pretend to spit. That was the worst. When they would pretend to spit in the head, they go like that. And you'd feel like a thing of air and you're like, well, it happened and you turn around and they were going, yeah, it was not fun. Not fun at all. Pit, uh, kids would spit yes, and on it, you, like physically spit yes. on you. Yeah. Yeah. And this lasted from uh, all through elementary school until about middle school. Uh, so I, when somebody uh, as a kid, like, so you're probably what, 10 Maybe, I don't yeah, know, maybe like the younger. I would say the age is probably like eight or nine till about and a kid spits 12, 13, on, something like that. Okay, so a kid spits on your yeah. head. And what do you do? Um, and what does that make you feel like? Horrible. <laughs> like humiliated. Yeah. Like, why would you do that to a person? And what would the kids do after? Like what the like whoever spits on you, what do they do after? Oh, they, they spit would just on you? take off. They would like so you would like turn around and they would sort of be gone. You really, really wouldn't see her or whatever. Yeah. And the teachers did what? Nothing. It's the seventies. They did nothing. And so yeah, I mean it's if this is an era where you didn't even have bike helmets when you were biking. And if they did, your parents would slap it out of your hand and go, Hey, I ain't raising sissies. Take it off. Go out there and bike on your speedo. I have so many questions. Um <laughs> If this went on for a while, what happens to you as a as a kid? Like, do you go to school starting with like anxiety oh, or anxious God, yeah. stomach and yeah, stuff? Yeah. Like, like you anticipate oh, that yeah. happening every Constantly day? Constantly anticipating some sort of the worst thing was uh getting into some sort of fight. Because my thing was I wasn't so nervous about the fight. It was I did not want to get into trouble. Like I was very much a kid who just didn't want to get into trouble. And I knew that if I got in a fight, I'd get into trouble. And then for sure, my mom and dad would be angry at me because that would get back to home. And it wasn't until my dad said, look, if you get into a fight, because this was like years, and my mom was trying to coach me. She's like, well, just ignore them. Or he's like, call them up strepperous. <laughs> that does not work. <laughs> so I think it was like two or three years of this. My dad was finally like, look, if you, if you get in a fight and you get into trouble and they phone us, I am not going to be angry at you because you were fighting at school. So if that was like, all right, finally. And also, the other thing was, if you got into a fight and you lost, that you just did not want to be humiliated. Like, that was, I just did not want to have that feeling. So finally, when I knew, it was like, well, because let's be honest, we're all terrified of our parents. You know, your your teachers can get mad at you and punish you, but it's like, yeah, whatever, see you tomorrow. But yeah, if your parents are mad at you, that's a whole other ball of wax. So yeah, it was finally then that I was like, I distinctly remember this one kid when we, the day after my dad said that this kid started something and I just like leapt. <laughs> and I just remember the look in his eyes like, holy Jesus, what's happened? 
And yeah, we both got in trouble. We both got the strap. The strap, for those of you who are um, civilized, didn't grow up in the Middle Ages, was uh, the teacher had the, every teacher, every principal had like this ruler long thing of Indian rubber. And when you were bad, they'd smack your hand. So we, we both got the strap. The other kid who started the fight, he, he cried. I didn't. And then we went back and he had all these teary eyes. And then the kids started making fun of him. And then he got bullied. Oh, the circle of life. (laughs) You don't seem the type of person that would have that kind of childhood or history, but is that why you take it so personally when you, when, oh, yeah, like when you're working with younger people and sometimes they're not nice to you? Immediately, I'm an eight year old kid and I'm being, I'm not, and somebody's spitting on you. Yeah, it's like I'm eight years old being bullied. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Seems like it's dime store psychology, but that's all that stuff of when you're a kid still affects you as an adult, you know? So what happened? Like, how did you get over that? What did you um, do? So it's right about middle school. I was lucky because right about middle school, it started to leave. But even before then, I started taking judo. Um, then I started wrestling in middle school. And I was, uh, you know, pat myself on the back. I was, I was a really good wrestler. So high school wrestled all throughout high school. Uh, and I was something about it. My body type was just naturally good at it. But even then as an adult, that, that sort of type of physical harassment, I just kept t- taking boxing and Muay Thai, then jujitsu and all that stuff. Cause I never wanted to be in that situation of, you know, being messed with, or if I was messed with being able to be, okay, Hey, another day at the office, let's go. Yeah, because you don't, I've seen you do different things like when we did kickboxing and that, and you're like the least aggressive person. You really enjoy the technique and the workouts, yeah, but you're not that's aggressive. years of training of being like, hey, if somebody, you know, if we're in this class boxing and somebody hits you, it's not something personal. It's, no, this is what we're doing. This is a, this is a sport. And that's what's really difficult for people when they start those types of sports. That's why a lot of people will stop them is because it's, you know, you go and you play tennis, you lob a couple of balls at each other, but if you're learning to box, you get punched in the face. And most people, when they get punched in the face, are like, I don't think I like this sport. I don't think this sport is for me. Well, yeah. When you came home with a, almost a broken nose, I said, okay, jujitsu and uh, MMA are over. No, it was a broken nose. It was broken? Yeah. Remember? Here? No. Yeah. Yes. That time. Yes. No, you had a huge gash yes, across your that nose. that was broken. Uh, it wasn't broken, Hassan. Fuck <laughs> it up. It was not broken. It was <laughs> bruised and cut. Okay. I'll get the x-ray then and show you. Okay. We'll, we'll revisit that. I know you've told me about your, and I do believe you had a great ideal upbringing, but there was no bullying, no mean girl type of stuff like that for you? I don't really remember any mean girl stuff. I I'm a pretty social person, so I kind of, I think I got along with everybody. My bigger, my stuff, like my bigger issues and the things I took really personally were all self, self-inflicted self because I had such big um, body issues and weight issues. So if, like for you now, if some kid talking to you, being mean to you can trigger that, for me, it's all about my stomach or if somebody makes a comment. It's much better now, obviously. I mean... I think I have a pretty healthy, balanced life. But when I was in my teens and my 20s, it was very difficult. And to give you an example of like mean things people say, though, I was at university and I think it was Bayshore Mall in Ottawa I went to and they had like a big Loblaws. And my sister-in-law was going shopping in the, the like the shopping center, but I had gone along to get groceries. And they had this really good bakery at Loblaws. So I bought a chocolate glazed donut. 
and I was going grocery shopping and I was eating this chocolate glazed donut and that totally random stranger, a man walked up to me and said, no man is ever going to marry you if you eat that donut. God, what a dick. My oh first my. reaction was like, that's fine. I prefer women. But I, on the inside, I was just, like, I was just burning and I shoved that chocolate donut down. Like I wasn't going to throw it out. I just shoved it and ate it angrily. But it was so hurtful. And and I wasn't a big person. And I don't know why anybody would say that to another person. And that man turned out to be Donald J. Trump. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, I had things like that being said to me. And at this time in our story, I didn't realize how sensitive I was to those issues until I started dating. So this is the first time when I'm 26, I'm live. I'm like, I'm going to be that girl that Cosmopolitan talks about. I'm like that, <laughs> you know, city girl that's dating everybody and it's all cool and I'm totally independent. And it was just terrifying. And I was in that last, um, in the last episode where I was talking about the office job that I ended up quitting, I did make friends with one of the girls and she set me up with a friend of theirs. You know, my, my real relationships were you and the PEI guy. And they were um, relationships that were six weeks right off the bat. You know, we saw each other every day because of those language programs. But this was just dating. And I did, he was older and we, we were going out. And I think one of the first things we did was he wanted to go rollerblading. And I was just really insecure about anything physical because I didn't do any sports. Well, you remember, you would go biking. And I'm like, why are you leaving me yeah. for three hours for biking? You were jealous of my bike. Yeah. So I would try these things. But he wasn't the nicest of people. But... I was really trying to be hip and cool about this whole chill dating thing. Wait a minute. So you thought rollerblading was cool and hip? No, I thought dating was, and I thought you ah, had to do these things to pretend to, to be, be cool and hip. Like that he would think, uh, ah. oh, she's cool. And uh, But he would do things like he would grab my love handles and go, there's no way that you do sit-ups. You know? <laughs> What a dick. So that would just hurt my feelings, and then that would like create all these other things. And yeah, you just, t it's even now I still take those things personally. It's really hard no matter how you work at it. I, it, even at the time though, knowing you, I can't believe that you would take that from somebody, you know, like I going back when I told you that story about the, the girl I was dating for a bit, it was like, Hey, you know, you'd be in really great shape if you just worked out a little bit more. And in my head, I was like, yeah, goodbye. There's no more next date. Yeah, but you, I can't believe that you, this Nancy, this powerful strong Nancy wouldn't have just been like, uh, yeah, there's a, that's it. We're done. No, but Goodbye. you had a huge amount of confidence. You've always had confidence. I didn't have confidence in that part of my life. I, d I just never have. I, you know, I didn't even start sports till I was much older yeah. and I don't know, everything kind of, I know now why everything ties into my stomach. That was the summer I got my, my belly button ring. And I thought that that would help me befriend my belly, which was my weak area. And all it helped you befriend was a constant infection. Yeah, for 10 years till I took it out. But yeah, I tried everything. And, and he was actually mean. Like he would show up and go, I forgot my wallet. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know me, I'll pay for it. And then he'd go, I think I just want coffee. So he'd keep my money. <laughs> oh Jesus! Just, Why would you keep dating somebody like that? I don't know. I beca oh because God. you know I fix on one thing. It's the same way. Was I it am. the type of thing that you would sort of justify it in your head of like, oh well, you know, you could forget your wallet or like eh, that happened just one. Like, was it that type of thing of you rationalized it in your head? I wrote about it. I wrote about it. I wrote about it. You know me. I obsess about everything. I I'm a perfectionist, so I analyze absolutely everything that happens in my life. What was the final straw then for you with that guy? Like, oh, that'll be another episode. But his 
behavior with me triggered the way I went into the next, uh, I would say four or five years of my life dating, which was really harsh um, because he was such a jerk. And I couldn't believe that that guys were such jerks. And I couldn't believe that I was vulnerable enough to fall for it. It's almost like being conned out of money, except it's your emotions. So wait a minute, are you back in Toronto then at this time? So we're both in Toronto. Remember last episode we were talking, we were both back in Toronto for the first time. Yep. Living there. I'm at this point unemployed, kind of falling apart. I had an office job, didn't work out. You were finishing up your jungle jungle guy. But you and I were still connecting and I think a lot of what drove me in these relationships was that if I could make it work with one guy, then I could say to you, PJ, like I have this guy. And then you would be like, don't be with him, be with me. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that how it works? <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was a terrible um, entry into the dating scene. And also it was the first time I was living in one place And as silly as this might sound, when you move around a lot, you know, it's easy to have conversations because you often find like-minded people who are doing similar things and they have different experiences and you can connect that way. Moving back to Toronto after living away for five years and doing different things, I had to figure out who I was, who not professionally, but also personally, like how do I connect with people that, you know, haven't ever really left Toronto, have just gone to high school, done the same thing, because I felt a little bit more open-minded and I felt a little bit more global. And so trying to build into those conversations. So the two things, I felt that he was attacking both me physically, which was my big, that's what I take personally. And also he just kept trying to reduce me all the time. Blech. Yeah. And I was dating at that time. Oh, yes, you were, PJ, because it's in my journal entries. So let's take a look. Uh, So as I said, PJ and I are still in contact. It's the summer of 1995. Yeah. And And I remember because during this time period, I would, you and I would sort of go out, go out and we'd have a nice time, adult time sometimes. (laughs) And then uh, I'd always think like, oh my God, she's so amazing. This is so terrific. Why can't we just get it together? And then there'd just be something that would happen that would pop out and be like, oh yeah, there it is. There it is. What do you mean? That's why. What are you talking about? It would always be something. Like what? Be specific. I can't think of a specific thing. Like something I would do? (sighs) Yes, most. I hate to say mostly, but yeah, like you would sort of do something or, or, you know, say some sort of fatalistic thing about, and I'd just be like, oh, there it is. That's why. Yeah. But you would invite me over and I'd like pop into your backyard and you'd be sitting there with a girlfriend. I'm like, why would (laughs) you invite invite you over with a girlfriend? PJ, I walked into your backyard and there was a brunette sitting there. The two of you are sitting in chairs and I'm like, oh, maybe he didn't mean drop in at this moment. We were just friends. That's not true. So you did your little bits too. Yeah, no, I'm not saying I was living the life of a monk and being totally just pining for you. And Okay, so in this entry, I'm really trying to um, make it work with this guy. As you said, I don't know, PJ, why I didn't just kick him to the curb, but I was trying to force this relationship with the guy. But PJ is still around. So this is July 1995. Two months dating Ben. Not his real name. Now, this is the guy who would This is the guy telling love me handles. that, yeah, you've uh, never done a day of exercise in your life. Oof, jerk. Uh, I'm really quite into Ben, but I'm afraid at the same time I want to hang out with him, but I'm trying not to rush things. And anyway, I think I've screwed, screwed it up already. 
it's so easy to visualize us together for the summer. But I think to myself, he's not that interested in me physically. He's going to be bored in a week. All I want is for things to work out between us, but it's as though subconsciously I sabotage things knowing full well I'm too vulnerable to handle a relationship. It's just again, this is I've only known the guy two months and he's been nothing but not nice to me. <laughs> but you still want to work yeah, yeah. out. Yeah, still writing, writing, writing about him. Uh, things had been going well, but then after we went to the movie, any idea what the movie was? No, PJ. I'm, I'm not. 1995, what would it have been? I don't think it was Ghost. Uh, I went to the movie. Ben said he was tired. I tried to kiss him and he said, I've never met somebody, someone who likes to kiss as much as you. Uh, the sign that maybe the guy isn't into you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he drove me home. Well, at least he's got a car. Was it a nice car? Well, that's just it. It was like my first grown-up thing, right? Like he took me out for drinks and he Ooh. owned his own car and he lived in a place that didn't have wow. 10 roommates. Yeah. He drove me home without any affection at all. Then we met up again and, it's, and he seemed about as excited to see me as he would be going to the dentist. I don't really blame him. That's so sad that you would just, oh. Uh, can't do anything right. And to top it off, I'm a cow. So flabby. I felt like such a freak eating a salad at dinner when Ben's family and friends were start, were staring or making comments. I think things would be so much easier if I were alone and far, far away. How insane is this? Is this even what I want? Or am I trying to make him fit the picture to get over PJ? That's the whole crime of relationships. Once something starts, one person inevitably is going to be burned. I mean, both people start off at point A and hope things will work out this time. Without a goal, with that goal in mind, true feelings are lost or misguided. And once that initial excitement is worn off, one, port, one partner finally admits, this just isn't cutting it. I have to admit as well, dating at that time, I felt the same way. Hey, you know what? She's terrific. Expiry date, though. And sometimes it would be something, you know, as deep as politics were so different, or sometimes it was something as shallow as, really, you think, you think those pants go with that shirt? Oh, PJ. Ugh, no, this won't last. Uh, and where does that leave the other person? Down the tar pit. And I don't want to be covered in, <laughs> in tar again. I want to be at point B with PJ, but that is not possible. I'm compelled to see PJ tomorrow because when I, uh, when I see him face to face, I know uh, whether or not it's over. The weird thing is, is this just is in my entries and I don't know, like there's nothing else. I don't know why we're don't seeing each why. other. You've invited me, obviously, but... Uh, it will be extremely out of reality to see him now, but I can't help but remember that phone call when he told me that he thought of me every day and wanted to get married. Which was five years before, before this. Before that yeah. date. That is exactly who PJ is and what he will always want. I'm sure there will be some lady friend at his place tomorrow night. But regardless, <laughs> hey, this is my lady friend. <laughs> but regardless, I will know where his head is at. I know there will always be something between us physically speaking. Not only just physically, but emotionally. It's so depressing to read like how hard I was on myself and I'm trying to, yes. and yet at the same time, I'm forcing all these love situations. Like I'm with this guy, Ben, but I'm like thinking about you and. But you're still hard on yourself nowadays. Like even physically, your job, like that's what I'm always trying to tell you. Just, just relax. Don't worry. Everything's terrific. Yeah. But I'm always wondering if we're going to get together. <laughs> we have no choice. Thanks for listening. If you or someone you know is being bullied, you'll find links to organizations in various countries that can help in our episode description. Remember to subscribe to Nancy and PJ Finally Get Together. This podcast is a spin-off of our manuscript. For more, check out nancyandpj.com. A big thanks to Isaac Alista and Dustin at Lifestuff Media. In our next episode, Nancy gets a foot in the music industry and funny guy PJ takes his stand-up to the next level. <laughs> <laughs>